All right, so uh, we're continuing on with these uh, book reviews. We're going to get into the Chronicles of Narnia. I read them when I was a child, maybe even later, maybe high school, but I haven't read them since then. So I've gone back through them and reading them, I feel like I've enjoyed them and it's hard for me to rank them. So I'm just going to rank them in the order in which I've read them which is not publishing order. It's the order that I think it's HarperCollins. They've set them out in, I guess you could call it chronological order, and I haven't even read the last two yet, but I kind of wish I would have read them in publishing order, but that's okay. So let's get into it. Okay, number 14 is uh, The Magician's Nephew, which I think in publishing order came out last with The Last Battle. Yeah, just generally also a few more thoughts about The Chronicles of Narnia. I've liked them so far. There's kind of flashes of Lewis's brilliance in them. I think they're great children's books. There's these deep penetrating insights and they're just wholesome. I haven't read Michael Ward's Planet Narnia. I get what he's doing in there. I'm going to read Planet Narnia after this. I don't feel like I have much more insight or anything. I'm just going to kind of share a few scatterbrained thoughts that I have with each of these books. Okay, so The Magician's Nephew is a creation story. You have uh, Polly and Diggory. They're these children, and they find themselves witnessing the creation of Narnia. So there's just kind of these lighthearted, funny things that Lewis uses throughout There's this empty house next to where they live, and they're trying to explain why it's empty. Diggory suggests all kinds of fantastic things like desperate criminals living there and secretly involved in some kind of nefarious activity or or some other kind of mystery. And then Polly says, Daddy thought it must be the drains, because I hear these strange things going on there. And Diggory says, Pooh, grown-ups are always thinking of uninteresting explanations. And this is classic Lewis using kind of the enthusiastic imagination of children to push against dull, scientific, modern, naturalistic explanations. Um, That's the project of Narnia in in large part, I think. It's the re-enchantment of the world. You have these giant arrows pointing to the the true myth of of Christ, the myth that became fact, to use Lewis's language. Lewis also has this penchant for striking against kind of arrogant elitism, probably being a professor at Cambridge or Oxford, Oxbridge, one of those places. He probably saw a lot of this kind of arrogant elitism, and we see that now today with liberals have a standard for everybody else but not themselves. And so we read Uncle Andrew, he's he's the pathetic magician, and we read about a pledge that he immediately broke. Well, then it was jolly rotten of you, said Diggory. Rotten, said Uncle Andrew with a puzzled look. Oh, I see. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises. Very true. Most right and proper, I'm sure, and I'm very glad you have been taught to do it. But of course, you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women, and even people in general, can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. No diggery, men like me who possess hidden wisdom are freed from common rules, just as we are cut off from the common pleasures. Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. (laughs) All at once he saw through Uncle Andrew's grand words. All it means, he said to himself, is that he thinks he can do anything he likes to get anything he wants. So, you know, Lewis is capitalizing on the bluntness and the simplicity of of a child's perspective, which has the ability to cut through a lot of subterfuge. 
I thought this was, you know, especially apropos as we still live in a world where this is happening all the time. The rules about masks or carbon emissions, they apply to the masses and the dirty plebeians, but they don't apply to, you know, people like John Kerry. Or I heard recently that the mayor of Tampa Bay was going to start prosecuting people at the Super Bowl who weren't wearing masks. And then there's video footage of her at the Super Bowl not wearing a mask. So these people have these delusions of grandeur. I mean, liberals in general are fools and they're dunces, but they think that they are the great sages, the great men of our time. And so Lewis has a has a really funny way of kind of striking at that. We see the same thing, the the uh, queen, the wicked queen of Narnia, we see um, we see her here in the story as well. She says, I had forgotten that you were only a common boy. How should you understand reasons of state? You must learn, child, that what would be wrong for you or for any of the common people is no wrong in a great queen such as I. The weight of the world is on our shoulders. We must be freed from all rules. Ours is a high and lonely destiny. Again, delusions of grandeur and the rules don't apply. Just a funny note here, funny line here. Diggory says to Polly, that's all you know. It's because you're a girl. Girls never want to know anything but gossip and rot and about people getting engaged. <laughs> we get the backstory about the lamp, the lamp post in Narnia. The fight scene with the witch in England is kind of this really humorous moment in the story. And that also explains where the lamp comes from. And then we experience the creation of Narnia with Diggory and the cabbie and, and all these others. And it's pretty powerful imagery, powerful passages. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath him. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. I really like that passage. Also, as a side note, there is a band called Page 116 or Page CXVI, and it's a group that takes old hymns and it they modernize them, but it's not in like a kitschy or kind of like, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of a beautiful modernization of... It's almost like they kind of make them ballads almost, but it's really good. And the name of the band comes from this passage, in, which is numbered differently in my book, but it comes from that passage. Yeah, we see the cabbie, this guy who drives a horse in England, in London. He says, glory be, said cabbie. I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. You know, he's kind of seeing the glory of creation, and that kind of instills in him something. So Aslan is making this new world through song. He sings it into existence. And we see the witch silently seething with contempt because she is more familiar than anybody else with that magic, and she knows that it's more powerful than her own. And it's a kind of a picture of the devil here, right? And Aslan's singing is also, the voice of Aslan is distressing to Uncle Andrew, who is this sinful, pathetic man. We see that the, the creatures are made more human. Aslan says, Laugh and fear not, creatures. Now that you are no longer dumb and witless, you need not always be grave, for jokes as well as justice come in with speech. <laughs> so Aslan speaking to the creatures, making them more human. And also there's a bit of Aristotle here. What separates us from kind of witless animals is rationality, and that's evidenced in speech. We're able to 
speak with rational minds. I'm pretty sure Aristotle makes this distinction between humans and animals in our ability to think rationally and to, and to speak. This theme is all throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. These themes of dehumanization and humanization. And the more human something is, the more grand it is, the more Narnian it is. And then when things are bad, when things are dark, the animals become more beast-like. And then sometimes there's punishments that are meted out and men are made more bestial. That's just a theme that goes throughout. It's a biblical theme as well. You have God become man and we become God, to use kind of early church language and kind of a theosis idea when we are united with Christ, we become one with him. And so we are made fully human when we are most godlike. And then you even have false teachers compared to dumb dogs. The Canaanite woman is called a dog. She compares herself to a dog. So Lewis plays with this idea quite a bit. We see that there's even this kind of like original sin. And then Aslan speaks what's called a proto-evangelion, or that's the way I read it. It's kind of a first gospel that we have in Genesis 3. We have a similar thing kind of here. In Genesis 3, God says that the uh, seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's kind of the gospel being proclaimed for for the first time to humanity. Aslan, he says... You see, friends, he said, that before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waked and brought hither by this son of Adam. But do not be cast down, said Aslan, still speaking to the beast. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. And as Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help to heal it. When I get into the line, the witch in the wardrobe, there's a lot made out of ransom theory of atonement. But really, in mere Christianity, Lewis actually gives his idea of atonement. And it's really recapitulation theory, or it's, it's more resolutely that, which has to do more with Christ as the second Adam restoring things when the first Adam ruined everything, launched the world into the fall. You see Lewis playing with a similar thing kind of here. It's not exact, of course. It's more allegorical, but you see a little bit of that here. Aslan makes the cabbie and his wife royalty. So this is another theme throughout Lewis's writing. It's a kind of rags to riches story, which Lewis is doing all of the time. This kind of eschatological, teleological aspect of depraved common humanity made great. We are made for greatness and transformed into kings. There's kingship involved. Lewis just is doing this all over the place in the Chronicles of Narnia, which is really great. That resonates with us because that's what we are made for, except the wicked who are made for the day of destruction. Diggory's mother is terminally sick, and there's this moment where Diggory sees that Aslan is kind of more sad about his mother's terminal illness than Diggory is. That's page 130 in HarperCollins. It's a really great passage. In page 146, there's this garden that it's either Diggory or Polly. I can't remember. They find themselves in and they have they have some task. And I can't remember what it was either. But the, I remember the witch gets in by hopping the wall rather than going around the gate. And that reminded me of Christ's words about false teachers, wicked men. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, which is what he's, I think Lewis might be alluding to that with the witch here. Speaking of Uncle Andrew, Aslan calls him an old sinner and says, I cannot comfort him. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. 
right? So there's that interplay of divine mercy and human agency that resisting the voice of God, he has made himself unable to hear my voice. We learn at the end of the book that Diggory grew up to be a great professor. So we get this kind of backstory here, and that's the professor that we encounter in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We find that the apple that Aslan gave to Diggory to give to his mother to heal her was planted by Diggory, at least the core of it was planted in Diggory in their backyard, grew into a tree, tree is knocked down in a storm, and then Diggory had that tree turned into a wardrobe. So you have this apple from Narnia brought into the real world and becomes a tree made into the wardrobe. And that kind of gives us the reason for why it's this magical wardrobe. So yeah, that's uh, The Magician's Nephew. That was, that's a fun one. Okay, number 13, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, all of these books have redemption stories in it, but I think that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is primarily a redemption story. The story kind of allegorizes Edmund as all of humanity. Aslan, you know, signifies Christ and his death for our salvation. I think that this is kind of the heart of the story. But here's a few more just kind of scatterbrained thoughts about the book. Okay, so these are kind of, these are pretty famous passages, but they're all pretty good. Lucy returns from Narnia. Nobody believes her. Her siblings don't believe her. The siblings bring the situation to the professor, now grown-up Diggory, and the professor pushes back against their unbelief. Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment, then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. <laughs> this is a kind of narratival form of an apologetic that Lewis uses in Mere Christianity, where Lewis uses the same line of argumentation for Jesus, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Lewis is doing this all the time. You have his kind of just straight nonfiction works that are generally apologetic, and then you have these kind of fiction forms of those same arguments. Right, so they discuss it more, and the professor says, I wonder what they do teach at these schools. It's a, a famous line. That people have quoted this a lot. This is Lewis slighting modern education, which is kind of, in one line, a narratival form of the abolition of man, which is Lewis's kind of apologetic against modern education. You have another famous passage. The Pevensey children are speaking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. And we read Susan say, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's just another great passage about, I mean, this kind of allegorized, you know, it's a Christ figure. And Lewis is signifying Christ with the kind of terror of a lion. But he's good, right? He, he is to be feared, but you can also love him because he's good. He's the king, I tell you, right? So that's that's just a, another great passage that's quoted quite a bit. There is this interesting bit of mythology that Lewis weaves into the story of the of the Queen of Narnia, the Wicked Witch. I think Mr. Beaver says that she was Adam's first wife named Lilith, that she came from the jinn, 
which that's not part of the mythology in rabbinic Judaism. But in rabbinic Judaism, there's a mythology where a female demon is said to have been Adam's first wife, and her name is Lilith. The myth is that she rebelled against Adam, and then God gave Adam Eve. That's not true. That's not what happened. And, you know, the rabbinic Judaism is notorious for making up all these kinds of things. But this is a figure that has significant symbolism. Even in 90s culture, you had kind of like 90s feminism. They appropriated Lilith in one of their music festivals. It was called Lilith Fair. And so this Lilith myth of her rebelling against Adam was something that they took as a badge of honor and named their music festival after it. You have Lewis kind of using this figure as, and he's mapping it onto the Queen of Narnia. What's interesting is that Lilith uh, is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Lilith, that's in Isaiah 34, 14, which is often translated as night creature or screeching owl or night bird. But it is what theologians, uh, linguists call a hapax legomenon, which means that it only appears once in the Bible. It's a once said word. And the root word is similar to night, leila, but a Hebrew lexicon will tell you that it's a sexual female demon, that Lilith was a female demon in ancient Mesopotamian mythology. So uh, you take a kind of ancient Near East approach and look at the extra biblical data, and they viewed this Lilith as a female sex demon. So that's interesting to me. Lewis would not have been unaware of this, right? He Lewis loves pagan mythology, and he's likely incorporating that into the backstory of the Wicked Witch of Narnia. There's this kind of, there's a little bit of a, I would call it a sacramental kind of outlook here where Mr. Beaver discovers that Edmund had talked with the Wicked Witch. And he says that when he saw Edmund, he said to himself, treacherous. And he says that he looked like someone who had been with the witch and eaten her food. Um, It's a kind of sacramental world that Lewis is setting up here. Biblically, you can't eat from the table of demons and the table of the Lord. That's treachery, and it affects your being. That's that's reality. But Lewis is kind of bringing those principles into the fairy tale land here. Aslan gives Lucy a dagger, but he tells her it is only for defense in times of great need, that she is not to be in the battle. And he says, for battles are ugly when women fight. <laughs> that's just a great, true line, and it really is foreign to our thinking now. I follow the Israeli Defense Force on Facebook, and they're constantly bragging about the women that are in their military. And I always comment that, like, they should be ashamed of this. I mean, it's the same, Americans are the same way. We think it's awesome that we have women fighting for us, and it's just absolutely silly. It's ugly, but we're not fighting, like, super ugly battles right now, so they can do it. And the horror of it hasn't really hit us yet. But that could possibly change. Another good line here. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. So again, it's just a great way of signifying, symbolizing this Christ figure in Aslan who causes people to go all wobbly in the knees 
And it, you contrast this with, say, like a, a Jesus character in a lot of Jesus movies. Although I think we've gotten better at this. A lot of older Jesus movies have Jesus as this kind of soft-spoken, demure, nice guy. And, of course, he's kind and gentle to his sheep. And then he has fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth to his enemies, right? So Lewis is just fantastically painting this picture with, with these things with Aslan. When the witch's dwarf approaches Aslan and asks for him to meet with the witch, he refers to her as the Queen of Narnia and the Empress of the Lone Islands. And Mr. Beaver responds kind of scoffingly. He says, Queen of Narnia, indeed, of all the cheek. And then, peace, Beaver, said Aslan. All names will soon be restored to their proper owners. So that's another kind of theme throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. There's this proper naming. There's this proper place, this restoration type thing going on. Before Aslan offers himself as a sacrifice, we're told that they have a meal, which is just kind of reminiscent of the Last Supper. A supper that evening was a quiet meal, is what we're told. I think it's mentioned a few times. And then we have the witch mocking Aslan. And now who is one? Fool, do you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. Absolutely wicked, kind of taunting. And there's a lot made out of this whole thing. It's kind of popularly said that Lewis is giving us the ransom theory of atonement, that, you know, Christ's death is paying Satan. You know, like, Satan has kidnapped humanity and... Basically, Jesus's death is kind of paying the ransom to the kidnapper for our freedom. And I've linked in the description, Gregory Shane Morris does a great job of dismantling that idea. And you can go look at that. It's a Pathos article. But the bottom line is, in mere Christianity, I said this earlier, Lewis tells us what he thinks of the atonement. And he basically says all theories of atonement are inadequate in kind of explaining fully what's going on. And he, he describes something that's not quite ransom, and it's not quite substitution but it's recapitulation, which recapitulation has lots of precedent in the early church fathers, just as the ransom theory does as well, which is closely related to Christus Victor. All this stuff is, th there's overlap with all of it. But the recapitulation theory, I think Irenaeus is kind of the main guy on this, I'm recalling from a long time ago. But it basically has to do with Christ as the second Adam, restoring what the first Adam had lost. And so I think that there is a ton of validity to the recapitulation theory. That's what Lewis puts forward in Mere Christianity. Also, just disclaimer as an aside for the heresy hunters out there, I affirm substitutionary atonement fully, but I also think that there's validity in basically every theory of atonement that I had mentioned already, but I would hold stoutly to substitutionary atonement as kind of the the main one and then i would also affirm recapitulation theory as well and that these things are overlapping it's it's all levels of truth on top of each other if you affirm one you don't necessarily have to exclude another all right so number 12 is the horse and his boy i really enjoyed this one you have this shasta character who's a slave and that's what I would kind of describe it as, it's a slave to royalty story, a rags to riches story. But it's also heavily a story that kind of highlights God's providence over his people. There's also this kind of Arabian, Turkish, Muslim-y feel. The Kalermans are basically Muslim culture. They have curved swords and 
you know, they wear turbans, things like that. There's this moment where Shasta is in this town called Tashba'an, and he sees these Narnian lords kind of making a procession through. And he, he describes them as wearing steel and, and silver caps, and some have jewels in them, and then there's some with little wings on each side. And those wings that he mentions, I think, might be Lewis making a nod to the winged hussars, hussars, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. They were the, the Polish army that defeated the, the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Muslims, at the Battle of Vienna on September 11th and 12th, 1683, which is why Osama bin Laden attacked on September 11th. It was this purposeful continuation of the West versus Islam, the Islamic culture. So this is that passage. The swords at their sides were long and straight, not curved like Kalerman's scimitars, and instead of being grave and mysterious like most Kalermans, they walked with a swing and let their arms and shoulders go free, and chatted and laughed. One was whistling. You could see that they were ready to be friends with anyone who was friendly and didn't give a fig for anyone who wasn't. Shasta thought he had never seen anything so lovely in his life. So Shasta has lived his whole life in kind of Kalerman culture, which has been pretty tough and austere and brutal. But among this royal entourage is Queen Susan and Lucy and Edmund. And I don't think Peter is there, but I don't remember totally. All right, throughout the story, you have... You have lions all over the place. You have you have these lions chasing Shasta and then this other girl named Erevis and uh, both of their, their horses. You have this cat sleep and kind of defend Shasta when he has this terrifying night. He has to spend in this graveyard type place. And he... <laughs> He, he appreciated the, this cat kind of comforting, comforting him, and he says, I'll never do anything nasty to a cat again as long as I live, said Shasta, half to the cat and half to himself. I did once, you know. I threw, I threw stones at a half-starved mangy old stray. Hey, stop that, for the cat had turned around and given him a scratch. None of that, said Shasta. It isn't as if you could understand what I'm saying. Then he dozed off. And then later on, we have this lion that claws Erebus when they're making their way to this monastery. And also Shasta has this moment when he jumps off of the horse to fight this lion. It's this pretty intense moment. They get to this monastery and the hermit tells Shasta that he must keep going to warn King Loon of an advancing Kalerman army. And he says, if you run now without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to warn King Loon. And it says, Shasta's heart fainted at these words, for he felt that he had no strength left. And he writhed and sighed at what seemed the cruelty and unfairness of the demand. He had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and a harder and a better one. But all he said out loud was, where is the king? <laughs> so he's just like crushed. Like he's, he's, he's already kind of at the end of his energy and, and endurance. And then this hermit's like, you got to keep going. And, and he just, you know, he feels crushed. And he, but, but what comes out of his mouth? Where's the king? What do I do? <laughs> so that's, that's pretty cool. And later on, we learn that Shasta's real name is Cor, which I think might be Lewis playing with the, the French word for heart. I think that Shasta has a lot of heart in, in this story. And we see that particularly in this moment. He's jumping off to fight a lion with his bare hands. He's about just spent. And then he has to keep going. And he's like, okay, let's do it. You know, 
So it's also kind of a good portrait of sanctification as well. That suffering and stretching is something entailed in doing righteousness. Okay, this is going to be kind of a long section, but I just think it's really great. There's this incredible moment kind of towards the end of the book, and Shasta is, he's completely spent again, like he's he's coming to the end of his rope. He's on this horse that can't run anymore. It's just exalted, and he's just walking by himself in the dark. And he's struck with terror because he senses this creature walking next to him. He's fretting. He's trying to convince himself that it's just his imagination. And then he feels the the creature's warm breath on his cold hands. And um, (laughs) even then, he continues to move forward and try to ignore it. And finally, he just says, who are you? And it says, scarcely above a whisper. And it responds, one who has waited long for you to speak said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said almost in a scream, You're not, not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. (laughs) Right? It's almost like this kind of prayer. It's, you know, Aslan as the God figure, like waiting for him to speak to him. And he finally does. And then he kind of tells him that he's, he's alive, right? He's the God who's living. And he's slowly assuaging his terror but not completely (laughs) and then he comes back by saying tell me your sorrows right like shasta is just destroyed and he's there to kind of provide comfort someone to speak to and it says shasta was a little reassured by the breath so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen and then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashba'an, and about his night among the tombs, and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert, and he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey, and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with his open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. What are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook, and again, myself, loud and clear and gay, and then the third time, 
myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you, as if the leaves rustled with it. I mean, when I read this, I just think of, of God and the name of God, uh, the Tetragrammaton and, and the I Am. Who are you? I am that I am. This has got to be Lewis playing off that to myself. Um, I am. And then you also have, you know, kind of this affecting of nature. The leaves rustled and, and it was it was shaking the ground and, you know, kind of reminiscent of the creation of, of Narnia, like he is the creator of these things. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new indifferent sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad, too. There's fear, but there's joy. <laughs> Aslan eventually reveals himself as a lion bigger than the horse Shasta was on. So I just, I really love that passage. I know that that was kind of a long, a long passage, but I just, I really liked that. Aslan eventually reveals himself to Erebus and he says, The scratches on your back, tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on the back of your stepmother's slave because of the drugged sleep you cast upon her. You needed to know what it felt like. <laughs> There's this kind of temporal kind of justice or this temporal kind of reciprocity that Aslan inflicts on Erebus while looking out for her as well, which I think is really good. That's a good kind of idea to be in our in our heads with even the way that God works with, with us in the fact that he does meet out some temporal judgments, even though we are given salvation. And so I think that that can be a helpful kind of um, affirmation of both of those. All right, so we find out that Shasta is the twin brother of Corin, the prince of Archenland, the son of King Loon. I already said that we find out his real name is Kor. There's this moment where they beat the Tashba'an king or general, Rabidash. I can't remember exactly who he is. And he's comically suspended from a hook on a wall. Uh, his, his shirt like gets caught in it. And later, Corin taunts him for this, and the king reprimands him, and he says, Shame, Corin, never taunt a man save when he is stronger than you. Then, as you please. <laughs> and then we have Aslan turning Rabidash into a donkey or uh, an ass, which is reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar kind of being turned into a cow, into uh, cattle, basically. He wasn't, but he... He was eating grass like cattle. Um, and Aslan, he, he says that justice will be mixed with mercy. So we see Rabidash is humbled, and it's this dehumanization that humbles him. And then he's eventually healed. He's brought back to his humanity. And that when the old Tizrock, which is the king of Kalerman, died, he becomes the new Tizrock. And we are told that he was the most peaceable Tizrock Kalerman had ever known. So I thought, I mean, that's a great redemption story for Rabidash. And then there's this humanizing, dehumanizing thing going on again. The last thing, King Loon describes what it means to be king. He says, for this is what it means to be a king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. <laughs> So those are just a few kind of passages that I really enjoyed from these books. So I guess spoilers in all of those. There's two more books of the Narnia Chronicles that I'll review, and then we'll move on to some other stuff. All right, bye. Christmas.